So good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill. Um, uh, and if this is your first time with us, we welcome you here. Uh, if you need a Bible, if you've made the decision to leave technology, um, then there's also that opportunity. I continue my lovely charge here, get rid of all screens. Um, but again, we've got our usher here, Rui. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and he'll bring one over to you. Uh, at Calvary Chapel, Bible, verse by verse, we're digging in, so it's good to have the word in front of you so you can follow along. Uh, one thing I want to just talk about before we get started, Israel, as we look at what's going on and more and more as we see this attack that took place on the 7th and we see and are learning more and more just about how horrific and horrible everything is that took place. Um, if you're still figuring out, okay, what are some things that I can look? Behold Israel, Amir uh, Sarfati, that's a wonderful ministry that has great resources to look at, uh, where you can truly learn and just see what's going on. Um, and I encourage you, you know, look at it. Some of it is really hard to look at, but we, we need to be aware of the reality of this. And on Wednesday night, as we were doing the book uh, of Psalms, it was a reminder of just God's faithfulness as things are going on, because we looked at Psalm 20, which is a psalm of prayer that the nation of Israel gives for their leaders before war. And we talked about and we're reminding ourselves that King David only would go to war when there was an attack. When the attack came, that's when he would go to war. And we see that so concretely happening now and just encouraging folks, look at Psalm 20, build that as a prayer. Build that as a prayer for Israel. Build that as a prayer for our leaders, that our leaders of our country stay steadfast and support there. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's mercy. Pray for salvation of souls. Because as we look at this, there's so much division, of course, there in the midst of that. But there's division percolating all over the world because of this. And we need to realize and remember there's one equalizer. There's one uniting force, Jesus, period. So we need to be a body of believers. We need to be people putting forth prayer for salvation steadfast. Because God has plans for that nation. We know it biblically. The enemy is going to try to attack and thwart those plans. But those plans have to come to fruition. December 6th, that Wednesday, please come if you can. Pastor David will be teaching. Uh, our lovely brother Art Walensky will be teaching. I'll be sharing some things. It's going to be an opportunity for us to really look at and think about the nation of Israel. We're going to hear about anti-Semitism. Get some history on there and also learn a little bit of why does it and why is it challenging for a Jewish person to come to faith, to come to believe in the Messiah? And then we're going to figure out, as we have all that information, what do we need to be doing as the body of believers? And what do we need to be? What's our role in this time and in that moment? So I just encourage you again, please be keeping all of that in prayer. Please be continuing to pray for Israel as you gather for Thanksgiving. It's a topic that might come up. And I would say, don't just shy away. We don't want to bring conflict Prayerfully, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you how to just share the need to be in prayer for this and what is taking place. And with that also, I encourage folks that are in the study of Psalms, Psalm 19 is a great one to share with family members over the holidays if you're going for a walk or whatnot because it looks at creation, it looks at the word of God, and then has you look at yourself. And that's a great thing to be able to share with folks. So take that, and while you're sitting on the couch because you're too stuffed, don't sit and watch the TV. Take your Bible out and say, can I show you Psalm 19? Let's talk about it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time, Lord, that we get to gather together in your house. And thank you, Lord, for the time now that we get to study your word. Heavenly Father, before we do that, we do continue to pray for the nation of Israel, Lord. We continue to pray for the people there. We continue to pray, Heavenly Father, for your strength, wisdom, and discernment for the leaders, Lord God. And Father, we continue to lift up salvation for souls on every side of this, Father God, that people would come to know Jesus, Messiah. Please, Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that we can pray. We thank you that you hear our prayers, Lord. And we thank you that we know this is all in your hand. The battle does belong to you, Heavenly Father. And Lord God, now be with us as we get into your word. And Father God, please remove the distractions, remove the ego, remove self. Have us just focused on you and your word to hear so clearly from you what you would have for us this day, Lord. That we would go forth carrying it, meditating on it, pondering it, and growing in you, Lord. Growing in intimacy with our Savior and King and living as you call us to live. Lord, we thank you for that gift of your word. We thank you that every time we open it, you illuminate new things. Let us never grow weary of our love for your word. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, lead and guide. Amen. So last week, we finished John chapter 4. 
And we finished what we can see as the faith chapter of the Gospel of John. And we saw the nobleman who traveled 20 miles from Capernaum for his son to be healed. We saw how Jesus responded to him coming and his travels and coming to him and asking for this request. And Jesus only gave him in response a promise. And he had a choice in that moment to receive that promise and have faith and move forward. Or he could have just rejected it, keep doing what he's doing, figure out something else, go somewhere else, whatever. But he made the decision to receive that. And it was a test of faith. And we reminded ourselves that we are going to have tests of faith as believers. And we saw that in this moment, it was about receiving the word of God, believing the word of God unto salvation. And we saw what happened in that man's household as he did that. His whole household came to belief. Last week, we wrestled a little bit with that idea of the word of God and the presence of God, but seeing how powerful and mighty the word of God truly is. And with chapter 4 and in the context of what we've seen thus far in the Gospel of John, we're reminded that Jesus is about faith in him, faith in the word. The miracles are secondary. That's not the priority. That's not the first thing we should be focused on. So the check-in on the charge from last week, one, do you take Jesus at his word? How are you doing with that? How are you doing with opening the word of God and taking what God says as is? Do you trust Jesus at his word? It's a twofold thing. Do you take it and do you trust it? And I would add to that, I should have said last week, in context. Because too often we take the word of God and we're going to see a passage today that people love to extract and then run with it to create different things. We've got to take it. We've got to trust it in context. And then do you taste and see that the Lord is good? To taste and see that he is good, that's taking the word, trusting the word, that's meditating on it. That's pondering it. That's chewing it. That's that Psalm 1, meditate day and night. And your heart in doing that delights in it because it's a joy. It's a joy. What's your heart like before you even open the word of God? Is the word of God enough? It's a question I keep asking as we go through this gospel, but it's one we have to ask ourselves over and over again. Is it enough? Can you rest in God's sovereignty or not? Are you able to rest in that? Because there's many circumstances, there's many situations that happen in our lives, and far too often we want to take the driver's seat. And or we'll extract scripture, misuse it to say, I can take the driver's seat. I can make it what I want it to be. Are you able to just rest in his sovereignty? As we look at this, again, we're in a portion of the scripture where we're looking at healings and miracles, and it can be something that could be controversial, but there's no need for it to be controversial if you take him at his word in context and you remember our state since the fall of man, we like to make it all about us. So if you read this making it all about you, bam, you're just doing what we've done. But remember, Jesus Messiah came and it's not about you. It's all about him and you have to rest in his sovereignty. So some pre-questions, we're going to do a little heart check before we even get to the text today. How are you with pride? Really think about that for a moment. How are you with pride? How are you with anchoring in his word, his spirit, his way? Not you, him, God, Jesus, Messiah. Do you need to control his word and confine God to a box of rules? Is that you? Think about that. When you think about your relationship with God, is it about all of these rules that you want to have? Are you safe in his sovereignty? Is your safety found in the sovereignty of God? And another question to just think before we dig in. Do you heed the voice of experts on the word of God more than heeding the word of God itself and the expert? Think about that. So today in John 5, the message is where, when, how, who. That's the title of today's message. And we're going to see the gospel of John with this text shift. As we've gone so far, all of the instances that have taken place have been a definite time. Now we're going to have a little bit of an indefinite time because we can't fully target the feast that's mentioned. We're going to see here the private miracles that we saw with the servants, with the water to wine, with the servants seeing the sun healed. We're now moving to the public sphere. We're now moving to these things being done in public, and we're going to see the start of the official persecution begin on our Savior in this chapter. And we're going to see a miraculous healing take place. 
Isn't it beautiful to see miraculous healing take place? But before we look at it, we're going to look at a verse. Turn to John 20. Because in the context of the healings that we're going to see throughout this gospel, it's important to remember why they're there. Right? So if we look at John 20, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that believing you may have life in his name. John provides the purpose of the miracle and signs that we're seeing in this gospel, and I don't want us to lose that. The purpose of them is to introduce oneself to Jesus. The purpose of them is to trust Jesus and his forgiveness, his grace and mercy to have your life changed. It's important that we remember that because far too often and in our culture that is so emotional-centered and so me-centric, we look at these things and we want to make it, okay, how do I get mine? How do I get mine? I want my miracle. Look at what they're for in this gospel. Look at what he so clearly lays out. It's about knowing who Jesus is. It's about believing Jesus, Messiah. We can't view miracles without salvation in sight. Because if we do that, if we're looking at them without the facts of salvation, of who Jesus is in sight, we're just like the folks we read about in John 2 in Jerusalem. He didn't stay with them. Jesus didn't keep himself with them. Because that's not what he came to have the focus be. The focus is the sin-sick soul, the sin-sick soul of disease being healed. So in this portion of scripture, we're going to see a miracle. We're going to see what should be worship, wonder, and awe turn to rot and worry. We're going to see the heart and root of legalism today. And we're also going to see that vital need, that vital reminder once again, anchor in the word of God alone. So with that, let's stand and we're going to read John 5, 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, Who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. Father God, through the Holy Spirit, empower me and enable me to rightly divide these words for your people, Heavenly Father, that we would grow closer to you, that we would grow deeper in our relationships with you, Lord, and that we would glean wisdom to carry, meditate, and ponder on this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So at the start of this, in verse 1, we see after this. So this is a continuation of where we left off, and he's continuing to go on. And we just saw that example with the power of the word. And now we see, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there's a feast taking place, and they're in Jerusalem. Now the question then goes, which feast is it? And this is where the time frame gets a little bit indefinite, because we can't clearly know exactly which feast it was. We do know the feast opens a door for public ministry. We do know that Jesus' intention, because everything he does, as we know through this gospel, is on God's timeline and for the work that the Father has given him to do. It's to get this one man, and it's to get the attention of the religious leaders. 
Because he chooses to go on the Sabbath. He doesn't go the day before. He doesn't go the day after. Now, the feasts that would be in Jerusalem, there's going to be three. There's Passover, and about 50 days later, there would be the Pentecost, and then short period after that, there would be the tabernacle. Now, remember also, there are other feasts that would be celebrated. While we don't have them ordered by Scripture, something like Purim, the celebration of Esther, and what took place there. Also Hanukkah, where we have the celebration of the two, about 200 years before Christ, where supernaturally God keeps the light going in the temple. Think of our own culture. We have things that we do as celebrate. Christmas, there's not an order in Scripture, you must remember me by celebrating Christmas. No, we don't have that for that. We don't have that for Resurrection Sunday, but these are things that we do. So there's these cultural feasts, but there's the three feasts that would bring them to Jerusalem. So it would be one of those, as you look at it, and you could look at the timeline of Jesus' life, three and a half years of ministry, you could possibly say this is near the end, and it would be Passover, near the end of the first year, moving into the next two and a half years of his ministry. Now with that, the feast is an opportunity. It's an opportunity, as I just said, because it's a chance for Jesus to reveal himself to one, spotlight on the religious leaders. And remember, he decides the timing when to go there. We see in other passages earlier in this gospel, he left to avoid them when the debate came on about baptism. He wasn't going to go there. But in this case, he's staying there. Now we see in verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now when we think about the sheep gate, there's one verse we just have to think about right away. John 1.29. Remember what John the Baptist said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's quite interesting that the gate that he's going through, the sheep gate, is the gate where the sheep would be brought in for sacrifice. And the sacrifice is coming by that path. So that's one interesting thing to note right away. Also, recall, why are we getting this context of the sheep gate? Remember when we started the Gospel of John We talked about the timing that this was written. First century A.D., about 90 A.D., temples destroyed when? 70 A.D. So in this, he's giving an ability for the people to have the context and understand the place because the gospel has started to go out. So you're going to have people who would know all of the things of the Jewish faith, and you're going to have people who wouldn't. But he's giving the details so everyone can point to it. Now, if we can put up the first picture... That I have, which is going to be a drawing. I just want to give us a chance to try to conceptualize some of the things that we're seeing so you have that visual with you. So, the location of the pools of Bethesda, so there's two about 800 years BC. Actually, they're reservoirs and medicinal pools, and they're in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem's old city north of the Temple Mount. They're about 165 feet inside uh, the Lion's Gate, as you can see that there. At the time, the gate was called the Sheep Gate. And because this, again, the sheep going through for the sacrifice, that's where that would be taking place. Nehemiah 3.1 and 1239 have references to that if you want to do a deeper dive. Can we see the next picture? So this just gives you an idea of what that area of the pools would look like. What, what, what there would be seen there, and then there's one other photo, and then I'm going to chat a little more, and we'll get to the other. Go to the next one. This gives you a chance to kind of see. It's, it's a rendition of what those steps by those porches would look like, and you can get that visual of the man that we're looking at waiting there 38 years as we read, and we see this here. Now, what's interesting is, again, we see the pool is mentioned here in Scripture, But there are some who were struggling with that when they would look at the scripture because they'd say, well, basically, if you look historically, there's there's we we don't see that. We're not really sure. So maybe John just added this thing about this in the scripture. And we're going to talk about manuscripts and translations in a moment. But guess what happens in the 1900s? An archaeologist at Bethesda unearthed two large water reservoirs separated by a broad rock dike. And they were rectangular in shape with four colonnades porticos around the sides and one across the central dike so let's go back here sheepgate a pool called in hebrew bethesda having five porches bam it's there and proven through archaeology so go to the next picture and that's what we get there so we get to see it's there it has come now something to also Note with these, these reservoirs, the principal use of them would be for rainwater being collected for temple use. Now, these pools and baths at Bethesda 
which again, the meaning of Bethesda is house of grace or house of mercy. Um, it would be a site for healing. And they believed that there was apparently healing powers by these waters. Can we get the last picture? And we'll just to see the depth. This gives you a chance to see the depth of the pools because it would be about 50 feet deep. But what's interesting, when we look at this healing sanctuary and area, east of the pools, they found pagan healing sanctuaries. And they found evidence of marble representations of healed organs. So they have feet, there's ears, and those things would be tied to the uh, Asclepius, who's the god of healing, and would be tied to Fortuna, the god of fortune. And it's just interesting as we think about this site of healing to remember, as we think about the context of healing, I want to remind us, it's biblical basis that we're going to always go with, right? So... Just because the healing takes place, and that's not the case with this one, but bigger context, it doesn't always mean that it's done by God. We looked last week at scripture that showed how Satan himself can work signs, miracles, and wonders. So we just need to be mindful of that. There's some imagery for you to have in your mind. Now we're going to go on to verse 3. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Raise your hand if you don't have what I just read in your Bible. Okay, so there's going to be some folks who might not have that in, in, in Scripture. And you could say, okay, wait a second, what's going on now? What's going on? Do I have an incomplete Bible? Do I need to go to the store and ask for a refund? You could if you'd like. That's your choice. But we're going to understand what gives. Why is that passage not found in every single Bible? Calvary Chapel, we use New King James Version. That's the Bibles that we have there. That's the Bible that I teach from. That's what we use. It's based on the King James Version manuscripts. Now, we have to remember when we're thinking about translation of Scripture, we don't have the original autographs of the Old Testament or New Testament, but what we do have, about 24,000 manuscripts that we have for the Greek New Testament alone. Some are complete, some are fragmented. Now, as you study the manuscripts and how they change, that's called textual criticism. And within textual criticism, guess what? As they go through, they're not finding many changes, but there are some variations that take place. And this is one of those places where there's a variation that takes place. And in it, there becomes a debate in the variation because some folks look at it and it's not written in because the other translations are based on another set of texts than the Receptus Textus, which the King James and New King James are based on. And they go there and they say, well, John... Did, uh, didn't include it, but the scribes put it in so it would make sense. Or they'll say, John did have it, but the scribes took it out because it was getting a little creepy and weird because we're talking about this weird like healing thing and it's too mystical and that shouldn't be in scripture. Where do we land? If we look at the cultural dive that we just did, if we look at the archaeology and the site and we see the pagan healing pools, we see the other healing pools, we get the context of it, we land at the place, it's in the Bible for a reason. It's in the received text for a reason. Now that said, I'm not going to say, okay, pick this translation only or pick that translation only, but it should be a moment to remind us as we're reading the word of God, look at your footnotes. Always be mindful of your footnotes. Be mindful of what's there so that you are reading and able to see all things. So again, just want to point that out so that if anybody's going through right now and you have a different translation and you're like, where is this? What's going on? We had one person... Make sure that you then understand, check your footnotes so you can see what, what's going on and you get the full word of God. Because quick personal thing that for me, when I was a new believer, working through Acts, got to Acts 8, 37, and I was like, whoa, wait a second, he's getting baptized. I got to get baptized. I believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm new. I got to be baptized. And that's what made me realize I need to be baptized. Fast forward two and a half months later with someone, and then they had a Bible. I was like, let me show you why you need to be baptized. Turn here, and that verse is taken out. It's another manuscript debate. But it was a case where they're like, what's going on? I was like, okay, well, look at the footnote. I'm serious. This is important. So that's why I just say, make sure that we're checking footnotes. Make sure that we're looking at all scripture. Got it? Good. 
So back to the actual verse. We see here now three. In these lay a great multitude of sick people. So there's many, many sick people coming and many different things, blind, lame, paralyzed. And they're waiting not for Jesus, but for the moving of the water. They're waiting for this moving of the water that's going to be done. They believe in angels. Certain time the pool is stirred. Whoever steps in first gets to be made well. They have a desire for change. They're hoping. But if you think of this, it's kind of a competition that comes. Because, okay, who's going to get there first? I'm waiting. It's moving. Go. So they're hoping against hope in some ways when we look at what's taking place here. And then we read in verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now remember John 4, 46. We saw a certain nobleman. And now we see a certain man. And I don't want us to gloss over that certain and take it for granted. Realize when it's that moment of Jesus coming to meet with an individual, you are a certain man or woman in God's eyes. You are a certain man or woman to Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that on our journey to salvation, you were a certain man or woman that he came to minister to. To say, I, you're mine. You're mine. Come be with me. So I just want us to realize that certain thing. And on the journey of salvation, youth, you will remember when we went through Mark, whenever healings came, I said, we're going to look at the healing. We're going to look at the context of it. But we're also going to remember we have the whole counsel of the word of God. And I think we forget in the larger church to look at healings in the context of salvation. Because if you think about healing, it's salvation for us. What are we being healed from? The disease of a sin-sick soul, right? So if we look at this man who has this infirmity, who scholars believe it's, he's paralyzed because clearly he's not able to get down to the water. I just want to plant that seed of thinking of when your sin-sick soul was paralyzed in sin state. When you're paralyzed in a sin and unable to move it. And in some cases, it's 38, 40, 50, 60 years. You might have somebody in your household who you're waiting for them to be open to the gospel. But they're stuck in their pride and they're paralyzed and unable to move forward. So again, as we look at the healing, we're looking at what's taking place. But I want us always, as we look at biblical healings, remember the relation to the soul for salvation. Because the most important healing is salvation. Because in eternity, all the things that some people are wasting so much time, I got to get this healing, I got to get that. It's done. There's, it's not a case in eternity. I think if it wasn't going to be a case in eternity, yeah, then let's talk more about getting obsessed with figuring it out on this side. We have to rest in his sovereignty. He does do miracles. He does do wonders. But he decides when. We don't get to. So now we go on. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So first, remember, it's 38 years that this man has been dealing with this. 38 years waiting for that. There's the feast going on. It's a joyous time. Rather than be at the feast celebrating, where does Jesus go? To the hurting. That's where our heart should be. And in this passage, we saw Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, and he said to him, realize something, Jesus saw him, Jesus knew him, Jesus asks him, he speaks to him. How long were you a sin-sick soul before Jesus saw, knew, and asked you? Think about that moment of, that, of your own journey. How long were you in that before you came to that beautiful moment of salvation? And we see here, he says to him, do you want to be made well? And when you read that, when you think of the context of what's going on, you expect the guy to be like, yeah, I do. Let's do this, man. Let's go. I want this. But it's a question Jesus has to ask. Jesus knows the heart, but free will is a thing that's never going to go away. And we also have to remember, Jesus wants to hear the heart acknowledge, I need you. But in that question, do you want to be made well? Think about the sin-sick soul. There's people you know stuck in a sin, stuck in a disease of whatever, of, of uh, sexual addiction, alcohol, whatever you want to name it. And you can say, do you want to be made well? I mean, I didn't drink yesterday. I'm good. Where am I going with this? Jesus can ask the question, but not everybody wants to actually be made well. 
There's many people who are in need or who are homeless. And they may have that opportunity. Can I help you? No, I'm good. Maybe they can, they're like, I'm, I'm doing well. I got, I got enough right now with where I am. I'm good in the situation I'm in. I don't necessarily need to switch that up. I've got a good flow going. I've got a good thing going. I'm used to it. Jesus wants us to express our need. And in this moment, he's giving this man a chance. Do you want to be made well? And we think about that sin-sick soul. Do you want to be made well? Or do you want to stay paralyzed in sin? Do you want to stay paralyzed and stuck in rejecting and that condemnation you're bringing yourself? Because we saw earlier in this text, those that aren't receiving, what are they doing? Abiding in wrath. So he's asking this question to him. And then we see the response now in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Doesn't really give a clear yes, doesn't really give a clear no. Reminds me of some of the students I worked with when I was in education. But what he does here is he gives, Jesus asks a question to build on faith. The man gives an answer that really just ties to the circumstance. He gives an answer that looks to the circumstance that's taking place. He has a perceived reality and he's limited by that perceived reality. Because he doesn't think that there's that possibility. So he just gives the facts of kind of how this goes. Sir, there's no one there to put me in the pool when it's stirred up. While well, I'm trying to go, somebody else comes. So that's where that hits. He's, he's just, this is the circumstance. This is how it is. And we remember the context of where we are. It's a great multitude. And it's interesting when you think about that. Because Jesus is there. There's a great multitude. He could have just gone, all of you be healed. And went, and went away. I'm sure the religious leaders would have had something. They could have still had the same point. He's doing this on the Sabbath. What's going on? But he goes to this one individual. And there's going to be many people there who, guess what? They didn't get healed. God's sovereignty. He decides it. He decides it. It's a picture of his sovereignty. There was a certain man. That's the person he chose in that moment. And that's who he goes to. And then from that, it's a reminder. Rest in his sovereignty, saints. Rest in his sovereignty. And in this, Jesus is also saying, you might have a circumstance, but don't think you're stuck in that circumstance. Now, it doesn't mean, boom, as this case, great, this man is going to get the healing. That will happen in some cases. In some cases, it may not. It may be a supernatural strength and power to endure beyond your expectations. So we go on. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. So in this, Jesus now asks him that question, hears him go to the circumstance, and Jesus says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He gives him three charges. Rise, take your bed, walk. And that walk there, the Greek translation means walk about. So he's not just telling him, get up and go for a stroll. He's saying, walk about, go all over, let them see you. Walking now on the Sabbath. He says, go, walk about. Jesus is asking this man, do the impossible. Rise, take up your bed, walk. Do the impossible. Are you going to be able to do that? Think of what we've seen from Jesus already, the wine, the water to wine. That's something one would say, could we agree, impossible? Being born again with Nicodemus, this idea, that's impossible. How can this happen? A Jew and a Samaritan talking and getting along and having conversation unto salvation of the Samaritans, that's impossible. And in this moment, he's giving three tasks to this man that he can't do on his own. Jesus speaks, he asks, and the man now has a choice. Obey his word or not. There's a choice that he has. Obey it or not. Then verse 9. And immediately... The man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. Immediately, man's well, takes up his bed, and walk. Saints, when we obey the word of God, that includes reminding ourselves and trusting the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do what he's asked us to do in obedience. Obeying the word of God is not impossible. God will give you the empowerment and the ability to do it through the Holy Spirit. 
Remember the whole counsel of the word of God that we have. We've looked a few times in this gospel of the gift that the Holy Spirit is. Teacher, comforter, guide, rescue. All of these things the Holy Spirit will do. Bringing scripture to remembrance will give you that ability. Now we go on and we see the end of that verse. And that day was the Sabbath. End of verse 9. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. So now we're starting to hit controversial territory, friends. We're going to see two areas of controversy this morning. And we're about to delve into one of them, Sabbath. We go on. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? So when we look at this, think about the Sabbath. God created the world. God took that seventh day to rest. That's where the Sabbath begins. The Sabbath doesn't begin out of strenuous efforts. Was it strenuous for our Savior to create the world? He spoke. It took place. He created. God created. Then we have the Sabbath that we ourselves should seek to honor. And what we're doing on the Sabbath, we take a break, we focus on the things of the Lord. At the time when this is given, it was a witness for the nation of Israel to others when they would take this Sabbath. It was a witness for other nations to see because what's going on, no other nation is doing this. But when we look at this now, the rulers, because when we see here the Jews, we know already from this gospel and studying earlier chapters, that's referring to the religious leaders. When we see the Jews come up, They took the Sabbath and they started adding some rules. They started adding some things to how things go. So they actually made 39 categories of what not to do. And what we're hitting here would be Mishnah Shabbat 7-2. That's the area that we're hitting where him carrying the bed can't carry something from one place to another. You couldn't take something from a private place to a public place or a public place to a private place. And these rules were quite interesting. You can collect rain from the sky. Now, if the rain is coming off of your roof, you can't do that. If you have a vase of flower, vase of flowers, don't put fresh water in there. That's sowing. So there would be all of these rules that they add on. And it's their perceived interpretation of what should be done. And their perceived interpretation of how things should do. They create a bunch of rules. And if we think about this, this man, 38 years, they come to see him. The Jews said before him who was cured, it is a Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Look at this. This is a moment where there should be wonder and worship. They should be saying, where did this happen? When did this happen? How did this happen? But they say, who? Who told you to break the rules? Don't break our rules. Who told you to break the rules? Heart of legalism. The heart of legalism cares more about the rules than people. They don't come looking at this to say, wow, praise God, you're you're, you're walking, you're carrying your bed. This is so, how do you feel? This is so exciting. No, they care more about the rules that have been broken. And we have to, saints ourselves, check your heart. Because we love God, we've got to love people. But far too often within the church and within the greater church, we get so obsessed with authors, scholars, all of these things, and we care more about the rules and getting it right than the word of God and loving people. How do we do the Great Commission if we don't have love for people? Break our hearts for what breaks yours, Lord. We need to have the heart loving people. But it's legalism. Do we see that today? Of course we do. You, you can have the long skirts only in, in certain churches. If a woman's not wearing, if you're a woman here today and you're in pants, get out of here. You need to have on long skirts. You know, everybody, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're only going to sing hymns. Paul, he's not in here. Get rid of that drum set. That's wrong. How could you do a drum? Psalm 150 makes me get a little confused with that one. But just saying, we add all of these rules rather than just rest in his sovereignty and take his word in context as is. But instead we read it and we say, I'm going to add this, I'm going to add that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And Calvary Chapel movement, we have to be careful too that we don't puff ourselves too up. We do the Bible verse by verse. What about you? 
Are we actually doing the work that God calls us to do? Do you know what I mean? Being his hands and feet, being his salt and light, that is what we're called to do. So again, check your heart. Is there any bit of legalism within you? Do you get stuck on the rules? Well, they did it like that. They can't do it like that. That's not how it's supposed to be because they're they're not standing the right way. Come on. So check yourselves. Where are we with that? Then we go onward. We see now. Verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. We see again, Jesus didn't come to do a big healing service. He wasn't coming to say, this is a set time and everyone's going to be healed in the name of Jesus. Ain't going to happen that way ever. But that's the reality. He's not there doing that. The multitude's there, so he withdraws. He's not there. It's not healing party time. Then we get verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. We're ending controversy number two now, folks. Here we go. So first controversy is the idea of the Sabbath. Second controversy is this idea with what Jesus says here. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Bam! If you've got an ailment today, I'm going to tell you it's because you've got sin in your life. Repent of that sin, you'll be healed. You try, you don't get healed. Repent harder. You don't have enough faith. We talked about this last week. Turn to John 9. Verses 1 to 3. Because this idea of every single physical ailment is tied to sin. I'm going to debunk it in three verses. John 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. We have to understand, saints, something when it comes to this idea of physical healing and God. It's not about systems. Because when you start talking about healing, and you can you could find many books and many things and many people leading healing ministries and all these pastors, female pastors, which doesn't make sense, all of these things going on, doing all these healing things, and they've created a system. Folks, it ain't about a system. It's about sovereignty. God is sovereign. And when we try to take the control of these things, you are saying, I don't respect your sovereignty, God. I don't respect that you know what's best for me. So it's something we have to be mindful of. It's something we have to think of because look at Job. He was called a righteous man by God. His friends come to him. What do they do? They listen, Job, it's your sin. You've got to get right with God and then everything's going to be okay. That wasn't the case. So it's an understanding and having to realize that our job when we see illness in folks, when we see that, is prayer. Now we pray, we lay hands, and I'm going to tell you, there may be times where that takes place and God in his sovereignty, boom, the person's well. And we say, praise God. And there's other times where we do that same thing and boom, in his sovereignty, that person has a strength where you're like, How are you so joyful in the midst of this? I would be, okay, this is the spirit of the Lord inside this person. Wow. So when we see this verse here, Jesus is coming to him and saying, okay, yeah, you've got that physical thing that took place, but don't miss the most important thing, to continue growing in me. Sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen. And as he's saying that, sin no more, it's that understanding. Can we ever be sinless? Eternity, that side we will, but it's that understanding. Get closer to me. Strive to walk in the right way. Because can sin sometimes lead to things? Oh, of course. Of course. You decide to go party, have a good time, and you go, and I'm going to make love to this girl, and do all these things, and then what happens? Or you're deciding to get, take some drugs, go crazy, you fall, you break your leg, turns out it's not going to be fixed, bam. Bam. So there are things and times that, yes, sin can cause, sin has consequences. But when it comes to the notion of the healing, it rests in our Savior's sovereignty. And when it comes to the context of what we're looking at here, because again, it's taking it in context. We can't isolate this healing from everything we've seen thus far in the book of John. We've just come through all these moments of 
God emphasizing, focus on the word of God. Let my word be sufficient. And then we read verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He's not ratting out Jesus there. He's witnessing. He's saying, who's king? Jesus. That's the way that I got made well. And as he does that, it's in a reminder. The life change isn't about that healing that took place. The life change is about sinning no more. It's about the relationship. It's about abiding in the Savior, knowing who he is as Alpha and Omega, and continuing that race for his glory. Because saints, guess what? God can do anything. But it's not about systems. I want to be clear on that. It's got to be about his sovereignty. We have to rest in his sovereignty. So the venture that we went through today, this healing of a certain man, as we finish that, it's not about opening up a store to heal everybody. It's not about us starting healing ministries. Although, I want to let you know, Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill actually does have a healing ministry. It's called prayer, Wednesdays at 6.30. That's the best way. Because guess what? We come, we go before our king, and what do we sing today? The battle belongs. When I fight, I fight on my knees. And a church in prayer, in one accord, go through the book of Acts. Whoa! That's why I keep saying, come on, get to prayer, get to prayer. 6.30, come on, clear your schedule, get to prayer. You're telling me you can't put Jesus first. Take it up with God. So again, it's this idea, when we think of this, the beautiful power of prayer. Right there is how we we take care of that. And now as we see in John repeatedly the focus over and over again, believe in his word. In this moment with this man, rise, take up your bed, walk. You're going to obey that? You're going to just get up? Believe the word that is spoken. Obey it and go. You could be paralyzed in sin, maybe 38 years. Maybe you're here and you've got a sin struggle. You don't know the Lord. Could today be the day you rise, take up your bed and walk? The other thing that we glean from today's passage is with religious leadership, with the church, it's not about a bunch of rules. It's the word of God. It's taking the word of God. We don't have to add anything to this. We don't have to put a color code on what you can wear and a dress code and this type of hat and this type of song and this type of uh, chicken. It's like saying you could only serve fried chicken at a talent show. Who would ever say that? But... (laughs) But I had to do it. The door opened up. I just had to do that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to have fried chicken. But I, I want us to understand we have to just root on, I'm going to pay for that later. We have to just root on the word of God. And as we think about that, I want you saints, please do the work this week praying through. Are you more about rules or the word? Take the inventory. How much time are you doing this? Versus, it's over there, scrolling, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, this podcast. And I, I listen to podcasts now too. I can be guilty of that. And I have to remind myself, pause Vince, get in the word more. That needs to be what I'm feeding myself more. How much of your time is in the word or not? Because remember what the word is. Hebrews 4.12, put it up there. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful. It's living and it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what we got. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing, the word of God. And saints, we need to let that be the focus, the root, our anchor, our all. That's where we need to land with that. Now, Pre-charge. There's a charge and a pre-charge this week. (laughs) If you want your life changed by Jesus Christ, salvation does it. I want continual change by Jesus Christ. I think everybody here would love to continually grow in the Lord. Guess what? Receive his word and obey it. Get in the word of God and do it. Get in the word of God and do it in context. I have to put that on there. Because we pluck, we pluck, we make a salad bar of the word of God. Take it in context, rightly divide it prayerfully, and do it. So questions, the charge for this week. One, 
What are you waiting on God for? What right now in your life are you waiting on God for? Because this man waited 38 years. And in it, with that, can you remind yourself he sees you, he knows you, and he'll ask and speak, and he's going to use the word of God to do that. We live in a time, we've got the whole counsel of the word of God. I promise you, if you commit to whatever you're reading in your own time, the Lord's going to use it to minister and speak to whatever is going on. Guarantee that. Can you trust his way as you're waiting? Can you trust his sovereignty as you're waiting? And can you obey his word even if it means it doesn't change? Two, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? And in that, think of yourself. Are there any areas you're paralyzed with legalism? Are there any areas where you're not interpreting God's word correctly? You're going on your own route and you're paralyzed in that. No, but I know this and I read this book and I read that thing and I do this and I do that. No, 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 just take the word of God. Just let it stand on its own. Is the word of God enough or not? And three, when we think of what he did at the end of this, the guy who made me well is Jesus. Who do you need to tell how Jesus made you well? We can't get into the word of God without actively each time having it propel us into the Great Commission. Propel us into sharing who Jesus is that they may have salvation. That they may be saved. That they may have intimacy with the Savior, with the King. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Father God, for this passage, Lord God, where we get to see the miraculous works that Jesus did and we remind ourselves, Lord, that John reminding us through the word, it's about believing in Jesus. It's about the relationship and new life in salvation, Heavenly Father. Lord, we do lift up our brothers and sisters in this fellowship who are ill, who are sick. I think of Barry, uh, Lord God. I think of Ella, Heavenly Father. I think of Betty. I think of all of these different folks, Lord, in our prayer lists that are ill, Lord. And we just pray that you minister to them, Lord, as only you can. And Lord, we do ask for healing, but Lord, we rest most importantly in your sovereignty. For you are God, we are not. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you help each and every single one of us to search our hearts, Lord, for the ways that we may be getting a little too rigid a little too legalistic. It can be in small ways or big ways, Lord, but that we would remove that to just take your word in context as is for your glory, Lord. For you preserved it so perfectly for us, living, powerful, two-edged sword that enables us to be refined and chiseled by you, Lord, for your glory. Because, Father, we forget sometimes in this temporal world, Lord, that we make it about the circumstance at hand, the way that man did, but help us to rise, take up our bed, and walk in faith towards eternity. Remembering that that's what matters most, Lord. You're using this time to prepare us for eternity, Lord.